0: Hey, I'm Pastor Colin from Aletheia Bible Fellowship. Thanks for joining us and checking out our sermon today about discernment in regard to food. Specifically, we're talking about discipline with examples of nutrition and fasting. And if you know somebody that would find this helpful, go ahead and share that with them. If you find this useful, go ahead and like and subscribe to ABFPDX, and I hope that it serves you well. We covered a lot of stuff this month, if you want a summary right now, too bad, go watch the last three sermons. Um, They're online and accessible. I think this might be a longer sermon, so let's get after it and buckle up. Um, Functional discernment, right, it requires discipline, we've talked about how we can be discerning in all these things, but it requires discipline, it requires some real effort on our part, as does all discernment. Functional discernment with food is no exception to this rule. 1 Peter 1.13, he says, "...so prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of of living to satisfy your own desires." You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in all that you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, You must be holy because I am holy. Prepare your mind and be controlled. That's what Peter says. Poor food choices are often from a lack of discipline, you know, of a lack of preparing your mind and controlling that. Those are the processes that go into discipline. Fast, easy food is often a neglectful choice, unfortunately. And it's anything but set apart or holy from what the rest of our culture does, right? Be holy in everything you do is what Peter says to us. Each individual thing and all things is what the original Greek of that is. Be holy in everything, in every individual thing, in all things. Titus eight says, Rather, he must enjoy having guests in his own home, and he must love what's good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life. That is some requirements about leaders in the church, but obviously those are good attributes for every believer that takes their holiness seriously and their universal good traits, right, for a godly person. Discipline means showing a controlled form of behavior or way of working, according to the first line of a Google search anyway. Showing a controlled form of behavior or way of working. The lust of food taps into our total opposite nature of that. Our total lack of discipline, far away from the concept of discipline is what the lust of food tries to get at. The most unwise foods tempt us via lack of control and the presentation of those foods to us tempt us through accessing or bypassing our mechanisms for control and, and utilizing our minds and our discernment. So grocery checkout stands, right, are a thing. You're bored, you're like, all these things are thrown at you when you have to sit there and look at them to wear you down and appeal to your senses. Um, they are presented to us through fast food drive-throughs. You know, when we're in a hurry and we're pushed to make a decision, we have to get rid of our discernment sometimes in order to be able to do that. Or we're set up for failure in that way. Flashy and bright colors, like in the grocery checkout stands, you know, or the fast food signs, or the packaging, or whatever, signage, all those things. They're supposedly tempting us subconsciously is what studies show and stuff, I'm sure you've heard the, the classic like trope of McDonald's and the red and yellow, but there's truth to that because the brain processes color before content. And we don't want to get into the details of that, but basically the concept is that we're being beckoned to not use our mind, but use our impulses instead to bypass our mental faculties, to not prepare our minds. That's just how it works. We are referred to as consumers for crying out loud, right? Consume, consume, consume. It's a normalized term, but if you think about it, if you sort of get rid of your desensitization, it's sort of insulting to be referred to as a consumer. If you think about the regular connotation of the word consumer, like there's just not a positive connotation to that. It's sort of gluttonous, right? Again, As a consumer, we're steered to operate on impulses and they try to avert us from having discipline by the techniques of the world trying to sell us things. Yet Peter admonishes us to prepare our minds and exercise self-control in all things as opposed to satisfying our old sinful desires or lusts, right? And of course, you know, a person says, oh, but Colin, this is a statement geared for a particular historical situation. But Peter says, you must be holy in everything you do, in no uncertain terms, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I'm holy. Is food included in everything you do? Yep, of course it is. And it's not because of a particular context, but a universal one, because God is holy, and therefore, so are his people. There is no universal, more universal concept than an attribute of God. They literally do not ever change and are solid throughout all circumstances. This is what this is based on. So we need to have discipline with food for the sake of righteous self-control itself, to treat and manage our bodies properly with respect to their real owner, like we've sort of touched on in previous sermons, and to be able to serve and focus instead of consume, to be able to have control over that. So self-control is somewhat synonymous with discipline, and it definitely requires discipline. Food has always been a way in for sin, right? And this is no different today. So we should strengthen our discernment. The enemy is creative when it comes to finding a way into our heart, like how do not covet is one of the Ten Commandments, right? It's not an action. It's a way into our heart. This is something we need to be aware of and be diligent about. The enemy is creative, and the stomach is close to the heart. in More ways than one. Gluttony is the stereotypical food sin. Gluttony, as defined, is habitual greed or excess in eating or possibly habitual excess consumption in general. This doesn't have to be an overall thing. You don't have to be overweight for you to be guilty of something like that in circumstances, right? Um, it can be in specific things. So we should be sensitive in discerning as to where our weaknesses is, where we let our discernment down Like most of us, um, you probably have a weakness. For me, that is free stuff. Usually free stuff is junk. I'm not gonna lie, I'm a sucker for free stuff. And it's really interesting to watch myself, right? It's tempting and tasty and free usually. Uh, Donuts are a common one, you know? And it's not that all donuts are bad or you can't have a donut every now and then, but it's a weakness that I have. When you abandon discernment, right? is that love? Is that our perverse definition of love when we abandon all discernment in order to dedicate ourselves to something or to accept something? It's a perverse love. First Timothy six verses six through ten, but focusing on uh, verse ten right now, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and some people craving money have wandered from from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows interesting that pierce themselves with many sorrows is like the consequence of that but anyway another common lust is money outlined here in first timothy uh, the issue is the craving of money obviously the uncontrolled want the uncontrolled craving of food it's unhealthy just in the same concept being willing to sacrifice for it but sacrifice what sin would have us sacrifice our righteousness in different forms responsible biblical discernment is asked to be sacrificed in many cases. First, it's God's standards. Sometimes it turns into sacrificing God himself in our lives. That's how it happens. Nothing ever happens in one sweeping move. The enemy chips away at us little piece by piece. And that's why we need to have our defenses up in full with being equipped with the full armor of God, right? Philippians 4, 11 through 13 says, not that I was ever in need, Paul says, not that I was ever in need, For I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Contentment in Christ is Paul's secret to live with nothing or to live with everything. We fall into the latter category, living with everything, even... Like, the poorest among us still have, relatively speaking, like, a ton of stuff. There's no contentment, though, in gluttony, in the lust for food. There's no biblical contentment in that. We have to have the control to take it or leave it. Food has drawn many people into sin, historically and biblically, right? Adam and Eve, just to list off, like, the main ones, even just off the top of my head type status. Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden, specifically against God's command, right? Stomach is close to the heart. <clears throat> Sacrifices and tithes typically involved food sources historically. Um, and even with us, food directly, tra- or money directly translates to food if you're tithe money. So even now it's close. And You know, like Cain murdered Abel because of their difference in understanding about giving food, giving their resources back to God in that way. Esau sacrificed his birthright for food. The Jews wanted food their way in the wilderness and complained and got into all kinds of trouble with God in terms of that and drew themselves away from him, blamed him, wanted to go back to their slavery. All precipitated from their lack of discipline and appreciation and understanding when it came to food. Um, God even designed manna, an ultra perishable food for them, to help protect against this and teach them an understanding heart about that. Food is dedicated to idols instead of God, or the Christian believers had their first fights over the unfair distribution of food in the church, and more division resulted from arguing about which foods are allowed or not allowed and all these things. There's lots of ways where food has caused issues. Um, Or at Love Feast, AKA Communion Potluck, which coming to you soon may happen here at some point in the near future. Uh, People were sinning through eating practices, just in general. 1 Corinthians uh, 1120 says, Paul addresses this when he says, when you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. Uh, As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating or drinking, or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? So in this relational, like, public sense, it wasn't just the misuse of the food just in their little localized bubble, but the sin wasn't just with the abuse itself of food, but with the implications with how that affected the rest of things too. Um, It disgraced God's church. It shamed other people instead of being used to honor Jesus's last supper, right? And all that he sacrificed for us in that process. So that was a really disturbing thing for Paul, rightfully so. Um, All precipitated by food. Through motivations of food, many sins have been committed across time and space. Again, we should use all things for the glory of God, right? Like we've discussed, being content in God and using his gifts correctly. And when contentment through food replaces contentment in God, we lose our source or reason to care about being holy in all of these things, including food. When contentment through food replaces contentment in God, We lose our source or reason to care about being holy. We can be discerning and regulate and even enjoy food because we find contentment in God. If you want to find an analogy that we use um, regularly, just think about a stable marriage, right? you would think intuitively based on our human wisdom that to have a good marriage, you should focus on the other person and keep like serving the other person and make that person the center of your world and like all this stuff. But it's not true. The way to have a stable and healthy marriage is to be content in God and let that filter down to your marriage, right? And it doesn't put all that pressure on the marriage itself. It doesn't idolize that person it doesn't set them up for a standard that they're not capable of meeting all of those things but you find your contentment and stability in Christ and then that filters down into your marriage it's the same thing with food because thankfully God's design and how he built us and how he built the world and all of the spiritual and physical realities in it these concepts trail across life in really universal and logical patterns so that's really cool so if we see ourselves becoming indifferent in regard to food, we need to check ourselves, because discernment cannot exist in indifference. Not only should we, should we be discerning in situations, you, know, social scenarios and stuff like that, and our own um, personal decisions, but in the food itself. right? We talked about that somewhat last week in regard to respecting God's creation of the food right, of the animals and the plants and the things like that and honoring God and choosing and supporting things that that respect his design and giving glory to God and appreciating that and not turning our back on that, I suppose. Um, But we should take, be discerning in the food itself. Um, So let's get a little more personal with that as we talk about discerning how we should be diligent with our food sources and with the bodies that God has given us. So nutrition, I would say is the discipline of fueling our bodies properly. First Corinthians 6.12 says, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food, This is true, though someday God will do away with the both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised the Lord from the dead. So in this, we find the concept of being legally allowed to do anything, you know, including eating food. Largely, yes, that's true. But with the caveat that maybe it ain't good. Legally, we're allowed to do those things because we have freedom in Christ. But should we be careful with our bodies, even though they will become obsolete soon and renewed and all these things? Yeah. They were made for the Lord, and He cares about them, is what we see in this passage. In and of themselves, as His personal creation, even Jesus Christ has a physical body currently. Verse 15 of that. 1 Corinthians 6 passage goes on to say, don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is a part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say, the two are united into one, but the person who's joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin, no other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does, for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? Do you, you do not belong to yourself. You don't belong to yourself. For God bought you with a price, so you must honor God with your body. Verse 13 again says, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. Some food you know, is clearly not made for the stomach. Um, Just as sexual immorality is not made for us, even though we can partake of that. Um, So this whole passage is not really about food directly, or at the best, it's convoluted, right? But we see the spirit of what is being talked about. We see... Paul's understanding of these things that our physical body has significance to it, to itself. It doesn't belong to us. We have to treat it with respect. We want to have intent in how we give it integrity and how our relationship God is reflected in how we view our body and treat it in relationship and all of those things. So I don't want to mix words. This passage is not directly talking about our diets and things like that. Let's not pretend that it is. But we see elements of how God views things in this passage, and we should be able to use those things to be able to fill in the rest of our lives too. Um, Yeah, some food is clearly not made for the stomach. You know, it doesn't respect the order of creation that God gave it. And so we should think about those things. Or some things are made better than others? Are we legally able to ingest those things without it necessarily being a sin? Yes. But should we do that with discernment, with knowledge and understanding of how that affects um, and reflects our relationship with our God-given physical bodies? Absolutely. We should take those things into account. So what about just going back to animals and stuff. There's some really interesting stuff. Like God's design is that animals walk around and eat things and engage the environment that he made for them, right? So we have like pasture raised versus confined animals, just as basic categories. Like last week we talked about the chickens in a little tiny cage with like five of them in like a little tiny box, right? or chickens that like run around the field and it's a lot more work to raise the chickens that run around the field and you like move their little houses every day and like all this stuff. But that is farming that is more close to how God intended the animals to interact with the environment. What do we see from the fruit of that? Well, when animals are able to be moved around real fields and able to eat varying greens and insects and all this stuff that they would naturally be able to eat in God's ecosystem, all of which has been exposed to real and fresh ecosystem elements like sun and soil nutrients and like the, the natural process of fertilization and like all those things, um, we see massive differences. Like eggs demonstrate the fruit of that really well. Uh, there was a study conducted actually in Portland, Oregon, which is kind of cool, um, or at least analyzed in Portland, Oregon, but 14 pastured flocks, Uh, were tested by an accredited laboratory here with the official egg, comparing them with the official egg nutrient data from the USDA um, for conventional like eggs, right? And so just as a demonstration, when you take your caged eggs or yeah, let's just say that, when you take your caged hen eggs and compare that to pasture raised hens that lay eggs like going around the field and whatever, you get in the pasture raised eggs, you get seven times more vitamin E, twice as much vitamin A, 20 times more folate, which is an important like pregnancy thing, right? 20 times more omega three, which is like a really important um, fatty situation there. And then like less bad things, like 30% less cholesterol and saturated fat. So it's pretty interesting. Like those numbers are pretty huge numbers. Oh. Sometimes to make up for like the omega-3 thing, because it's really important, the caged eggs will be like enriched with omega-3. Even the ones where we give it our best effort to like enrich that, there's still three times less of omega-3 or whatever than the pasture raised things. So it's like a really significant difference. And that should make a difference to us. How much weight you give that, I'll leave that up to you. But it's something that we should take into account, if nothing, as evidence of God's amazing provision and the design that he has for us and how our bodies are supposed to be fueled in the discipline of nutrition, you know? Instead of just eating something that is, it's not man-made because we are capable of biologically making next to nothing, Um, but just a real sad approximation of the original intended creation. But God even made our intuition, right, and natural patterns generally, like, reliable. So it's like, we could have come to that conclusion just thinking about how God made things and then how we do things. And so we should come to the conclusion that, yeah, of course, the way that God made it is going to be better for us in all aspects. And so we see that and we're like, oh, cool, this is awesome. Um, but even in other colors, as you're, like, being discerning in thing, like, Colors indicate content usually, like with vegetables and stuff. So if you eat like a variety of color of things, that's like a general rule that you're getting like a diverse array of nutrients and stuff. That's cool, that's what we should be seeking in order to do right by that and have some discipline in that. Set our bodies up for success and love them like the gifts that they are. Um, And even like in the eggs, like pastured eggs are much more varied and rich in color than the factory raised ones. Like you see it in all kinds of things. Uh, And another interesting fact, like I said, you should do your own research because there's some really interesting stuff. But like free range is often, um, like you think of that as, oh cool, free range. But essentially that's nutritionally, it's pretty much the same thing as confined. That's great, the animals are treated a little bit better. That's significant, that's important, that should factor into our mind. But they're still being fed like the same feed, they're still a billion chickens in a spot, they're just able to like walk around more, but they still just sit like right next to their feed trough and like just eat the, the whatever factory food that they give them. And so nutritionally, it's still pretty much the same. They have the option of going outside most of the time. They don't really choose to go outside because they're chickens and their food is right there. you know. And so they're just gonna plow that food all day. And that doesn't translate well because that's not how God designed them to be fed. God designed them to go out and forage and eat all the little insects and like all this stuff. So you should look into it too, do your own diligence, have some discipline in that every now and then. But in summary of all that, like, God's design beats ours every time. And it's a clean sweep, it's not even a competition. But the question is why does it take a scientific study for us to realize that? as a human species or whatever. It's called an utter lack of faith. That's why. So as believers, are we going to follow that or are we going to be holy and set apart from the rest of the mentality of our society? We should know God and come to these conclusions on our own. This is what real faithful discernment looks like. But what about another category? What about beef, just to spend another minute on this, like there's fewer studies on the same comparison, but what should we reasonably assume before even looking? Well, we should assume that if the cows are able to go out and free graze and everything, we should find the same types of conclusions, that it is more nutritious and that it's more respectful for the animals and like all these things. Um, And that is what we find, no surprise, that grass-fed beef, open pasture beef is far better You know, and this is, uh, let's see, found in fewer studies, but still enough to get the gist of it. Um, Meat contains like all the things that we need to survive pretty much, which is cool. So it's important for us. Um, You can not eat meat, obviously, but if you do eat meat, it's an important thing. And pastured cattle is higher in many nutrients than penned up or grain-fed cattle, so it's much higher in like vitamin A or E and other antioxidants, the same as the egg situation. And it's kind of cool, I ran into vitamin E. It's like a major thing in eggs and beef. And it says this antioxidant sits in your cell mem- membranes and protects them from oxidation or damage. You know, um, So it's, I don't know if you've ever put vitamin E like on your lips or something like that, but it does the same thing You know, when applied externally where it protects and heals whatever it touches, but it like infuses your body with that. And it's kind of interesting to have an understanding of these things like, okay, so we ingest more things like that and you can have a visual conception of like what these things do for your body because you can see it working outside of your body. And then with the understanding that it kind of does the same thing on the inside, this is very simple, you know, layman terms here. But that's the concept that we should be able to appreciate and give God, God glory for. Um, so I like it from my non-expert understanding. It seems pretty cool. And it's no shocker that we see these things. Um, that we see that seeking God in all aspects of our food leads to productive things. Be free to, and encouraged to research this stuff on your own. But we should be inclined to the same faithful and uh, discerning conclusions about other meats and food, right? about genetically modified foods, about special diets and fad diets and things, about man-made foods and ingredients. We should reach all the same conclusions for those things without even doing our research first. Like you should do your diligence on that. But even before that, we should have an assumption based on our worldview, based on our understanding of God as creator. But, there are lots of man-made foods and ingredients out there. Some good starters to discern may be like, you know, it's the basics, right? High fructose corn syrup is bad news. Um, artificial colors, uh, thing, you know, those things like, their colors are banned in some other countries and it's very confusing for what the truth of it is, you know, because the U.S. has some stuff that banned that other countries accept and we accept lots of stuff that lots of other countries have banned it's very confusing for truth, but we can always come back and rely on God's wisdom for those things. That if he didn't design it and he didn't create it and we're putting it into our bodies, we should be real cautious of that and understand that there are consequences for that and there are implications as far as our relationship with God, if we take that seriously. Um, like the color situation, they're petroleum derived, you know, which is kind of crazy. That's like oil or whatever, right? but they're petroleum-derived products. They come with really low limits certified by the FDA for good reason. Their concerns span like a whole gamut, you know, DNA damage and uh, tendency for attention things like ADD vulnerabilities and aggression, uh, aggressive tendencies and allergic reactions and extra tumors. And they do these tests on like rats and things where they can, you know, morally or whatever like expose the animals to these things and see the effects. And it's kind of crazy. But as far as that goes, like do your diligence and know the very basics at least, right? You should, you should take some ownership of it. Just the, and it's attainable. Like the fact that red 40 and yellow five and six, those are like three numbers to remember basically, they make up for 90% of the artificial dyes that are known to be sketchy, right? of them, just those three things, yellow five and six and red 40. And the other thing, you know, that's intuitive, like stay away from things with long lists of unpronounceable stuff. Like what the heck is all this? By our worldview, we should be real cautious about those things and understand um, what we're getting into instead of suspending our process of discernment. For the sake of just what we want in the moment for whatever reason. This can be analogous, not saying it's on the same level, but this can be analogous to the Ten Commandments, right? There are plenty of other ways that we can sin, but God gives us Ten Commandments that are a good foundational start and help us build a stable, healthy society, right? Just, you know, some highlights, you know, don't have any other God but him. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't covet. Like these things are all healthy basic guidelines that every believer should know. You gotta start somewhere if we're going to be discerning of these things. Be aware at least to begin discerning what you're accepting as part of your God-given potty. Um, and also what you're giving your children. You know we tend to be hard-hearted or stubborn about things and then we bring the children into it and we're like, oh, the children, we need to be careful of the children. It's like, that's true and that's for good reason because they're generally more vulnerable, you know, especially when it comes to like giving them bad things. Um, They're also innocent and can't make decisions for themselves. But if you're sketched out about giving something to a child, it logically follows like we should take a second thought about what we accept as that too. right? As hard of a standard as that is for whatever reason, it's a reasonable standard. Um, And again, it's interesting to do even a modicum of research every couple of months, uh, if you're stuck at not knowing what to do or not knowing how to be productive or whatever. Um, And if you're stuck at the store, you feel like maybe you should be concerned about something, You can try the phone a friend situation. You know, we have a house nutritionist over here. I'm volunteering. Michaela, I'm sure she would be glad to take a phone call and talk to you about something real quick. And that would be a good learning experience and cool relationship building and being responsible in that. So we should be able to give our full, genuine, heartfelt thanks for the food that we eat and not be sketched out by something. So it's like a double-edged sword, right? You're trying to develop your discernment and your conscience about these things and being aware of that. And then that makes us, as we're giving thanks for our food, like we talked about previously, it makes us have a harder time of being able to give genuine thanks for the food that we come into contact with, right? And so it's this balance of being discerning and learning to develop our discernment and doing right by God, but then making good choices so that we don't violate that at the same time. And that is kind of a hard life in our current culture to box ourselves into, but what's new, right? Life isn't supposed to be easy. Life is supposed to be for God, not for us. And so we should work on this Maturation that we have before us here. Um, again, you may eat anything, but be wise about it and don't violate your conscience before God, as the scriptures say. So you care for your body that He's given you. Uh, in this vein, yeah, we should think of God when we eat, and we think when we think about eating. Uh, and be disciplined in that, guarding against lust. But there's also a common biblical example to be disciplined in the opposite way, in the opposite way of this. The opposite way of being disciplined in how we eat is being disciplined in how we don't eat. Fasting is a common biblical practice To serve and focus instead of consume is sort of the, I don't know, mechanics and intent of that. Honestly, fasting deserves like a whole month versus just one third of a sermon at best. But it's part of a believer's godly and dynamic relationship with food. And it's something that we don't see a whole lot of um, religiously so much, being a consumer society. So fasting is basically uh, choosing to abstain, to hold off from a particular thing, commonly food. And it's uh, making a comeback in our culture for other than religious reasons. It's a secular practice too. Not surprisingly, we find that periodic fasting works well with our bodies. Again, we see it as like a biblical practice, and we come to find out, oh, what? It can actually be really good for our bodies to do that interesting. It's not that interesting. It's expected. So that's cool. America uses it for weight loss and detoxing and such, which is good. Um, Again, because God's prescriptions hold it to be consistently beneficial for us. God's prescriptions hold to be consistently beneficial for us. But the biblical tradition of fasting, even from Christ itself, is to help us be disciplined and focus on God. So Acts 14.23 says, Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church with prayer and fasting. They turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So this is a a moment of sincerity, not in trouble or anything, but in advocation and seeking God's wisdom uh, and God's attention and preparing to respond to God's call. Like, that's where we see fasting in that situation, as they're appointing people to lead the church. That is cool. That is good. Uh, Daniel 9-2, Old Testament status. During the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, learned from reading the word of the Lord as received to Jeremiah, revealed to Jeremiah the prophet, that Jerusalem must lie desolate for 70 years So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and fasting. I also wore rough burlap and sprinkled myself with ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, you are a great and awesome God. You always fulfill your covenant and keep your promises of unfailing love to those who love you and obey your commands. But we have sinned and we've done wrong. We have sinned and done wrong. We have rebelled against you and scorned your commands and regulations. We have refused to listen to your servants and prophets who spoke on your authority to our kings and princes, princes and ancestors and to all the people of the land. This is in response to some bleak news. Daniel fasted and prayed and repented and advocated for himself and for his people. The bleak news is people had done wrong and their holy city, Jerusalem, was going to be in ruins for 70 years. Daniel took this seriously because he loved God and he loved his people and he loved his culture. We see that Daniel isn't trying to earn God's attention, but is earnestly expressing his despair and pleading based on God's character. Based on God's character, not based on his own, you know, desires or trying to manipulate God or something like that. But based on God's own character, he pleads with him. As usual, it's about God. 1 Samuel 7, 3, we see, say, then Samuel said to all the people of Israel, if you want to return to the Lord with all your hearts, get rid of all your foreign gods and your images of Ashtoreth, Turn your hearts to the Lord and obey him alone. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites got rid of their images of Baal and Asereth and worshiped only the Lord. Then Samuel told them, gather all, your, all of Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and in a great ceremony, they drew water from a well and poured it out before the Lord. They also went without food all day and confessed that they had sinned against the Lord. It was at Mizpah that Samuel became Israel's judge. Again, specifically repentance and fasting go hand in hand here. And we've been focusing more and more on repentance lately because it's something that is um, lacking in a lot of the modern church. And so it's an interesting and significant element to fasting. Uh, Esther 4.15, we see, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, 16, verse 16, yeah. Go and gather all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is a, against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Uh, in this scenario, there was, a plot, there was a plot to convince the king Uh, Xerxes, I believe, to have all the Jews murdered in the entire empire. Esther, a queen, uh, raised out of plain Jewish-like roots, uh, got to save her whole nation that day by her faith, by convincing the king to do differently, just as the gist of it. She brought God into the problem, and into the solution. Not that God wasn't wasn't already in it already, but she decided to participate in it in this way through fasting and asking the whole community to fast too. Esther was advised in verse 14, if you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Fasting, we see, is... Mostly important because it changes us. It brings us into the right place. Esther prepared to take a righteous but risky action, risking her life, acting in faith to do what was right before God. Controlling herself in her, in her discipline of food was part of the natural process of this, of how they came before God in their relationship. In this, her heart needed to be purified for this ministry. And she was also supported from this um, Mordecai, which is cool. And fasting was a good tool for this. They all participated together. She also asked others, yeah, to do that. This was an epic situation with high stakes. And so they took it seriously and laid it before God. And they chose to do it in this specific way. Fasting is the discipline and mastery of our most basic physical need, putting God above even that, even above our food and sustenance. This is a healthy spiritual practice, even for one day or even for one meal. There is no rule for it, to set aside time to come before God in fasting and prayer. It takes a long time to eat. You know that? How much time do you spend every day, especially if you're like cooking your meals and stuff? It takes a long time to eat. Imagine how much extra time you could have with God as compared to your normal day if you decided to skip out on meals for a day and use that time with God. It's pretty significant. Do we think about things like that? Do we do that? Especially when we have something to repent about or have some ministry that is like, heavy on our hearts and we want to prepare for that or seek God's wisdom in that. Do we do those things? Fasting is a reminder also of our need for God's providence, right? It makes us thankful. When you go without food, you appreciate what food is. So let's, yeah. It lets us uh, take the time to focus and rely on God, to prepare for ministry and to seek God's protection or deliverance to repent or simply worship God and have extra time doing that. It's a positive relational sacrifice even. So it's good. And it's something that we should give some real thought about in terms of the role of that in our lives in regard to food. We are not to condemn others for what they eat, you know, according to Paul in Romans 14, but we are to be discerning and judge ourselves on all matters, including how we go about food, how we choose to eat or not eat, to feast or fast, all of these things. We're to be discerning and judge ourselves on all those matters, not necessarily judging other people. But we're free, legally, to do anything, to eat anything. There's an unknown quote I ran into. It says, the price of liberty is constant diligence. The price of liberty is constant diligence. And as a nation, through the eyes of a Christian, we're really learning that right now. We see it painfully clear in our culture that, The price of liberty is constant diligence. And if you don't pay that diligence, then your liberty is not the same. God made our bodies to be fueled by his spirit and his creation, not our creation. He also made our bodies to be able to take some hits in all aspects. Our bodies are really amazing. They're amazing biological machines. That we've been given. But we should know when we're allowing ourselves to take a hit. Like when Jesus went for 40 days without food. You know, Jesus did that just before he started his ministry. This was an intentful sacrifice of fasting to prepare in that way. Or in 1 Kings 19, when Elijah was basically commanded to take a hit in that way giving his body nutrition from a couple meals of bread and water just to sustain him for a super long journey in service to God. Like those things were understood and calculated. Both those scenarios, they didn't adequately nourish those people for their labors. And we don't need all of that to be able to serve God in the way that we need to. But God blessed them because they were pursuing him. In those situations and following his direction this is good discernment this is choosing to allow our body to take a hit in order to pursue god that's another way to look at fasting in all of these things maybe you are offered a meal by some people you know unbelievers that you're ministering to or whatever and so you can go there and uh, with a free conscience be able to take and eat and have relationship and fellowship and discussion with those people. Totally legal. Your body takes a hit. But it's in pursuit of God intentfully. That's what we're looking for. And being able to understand and articulate that. That's good discernment. Are our regular consumption habits good discernment? You know, rock stars and 7-Eleven taquitos and fast food, you know, are those kinds of things, especially if they're habits, are they good discernment? Make sure that we're also be di- being discerning with all the freedom that we have today in regard to food, being self-controlled as we consider our bodies as gods, doing everything for the glory of God, including how we respect God's design and give glory to God's design and all those things and feed ourselves according to it. And even using a purposeful lack of food and fasting to bring ourselves into a right relationship with God as we pursue him and the callings that he has for us. All these things help to make sure that we're acting holistically, right, as holy members of the body of Christ, following biblical philosophy when it comes to food, having the right attitude about our food, being understanding and discerning in where we get our food. God is the expert gardener and designer of our lives and our creation and our bodies. He's created both your food and your body to match. So is the God, the God of your food and sustenance or is that none of his business? Moving forward, we should look to creation to see how it operates best and work with it and work with the flow of God's, how God designs and builds things and be able to, with faith, assume those truths onto things that we're not sure about and do our diligence to do our own research a little bit too, huh? Instead of going deeper and deeper into our own solutions, if you wanna call them that. So, questions for today. How capable are you of taking or leaving food as it's needed to serve God properly? How capable are you of taking or leaving food as is needed to serve God properly? How willing or capable are you of being discerning of respectable nutrition, of God's design for nutrition. Whatever choice you make, regardless, how capable or willing are you of being discerning of that respectable nutrition? Do you give glory to God for his awesome design match of food and nutrition to our incredible bodies? Do you give glory to God for his awesome design match of food and nutrition to our incredible bodies? And let's see, what has your experience been with fasting? What has your experience been with fasting? How could fasting be a beneficial addition to your life? Or if you fast already, what can you add to your purpose or practice? If you fast already, what can you add to your purpose or practice? Okay, let's go discuss.